All right, cats and kittens, we are back in another stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the BrandoCast. Yeah, we've been doing this for three months in a row, and today, via the power of Squadcast, I'm talking to a friend of mine in real life, someone who I've actually worked with. I haven't worked much in my life, but when I did, I worked with this dude, one of the best dudes in the city of Los Angeles. He is a real deal writer. He doesn't talk about it. He gets paid for it. He shows up, whether it's Everybody Hates Chris, The Cleveland Show, some dumb sitcom called My Boys, or Blackish, which he's running right now. Ladies and gentlemen, from the city of Philadelphia, please give it up for Mr. Courtney Lilly. Hey, man. Brendan Smith. I'm so happy to be here, man. Thank you for inviting me. Well, may I say that you have a very spectacular quarantine beard going on, my friend. The, the only thing I've learned over these last three months is that like, I can grow a beard in a way I never thought I could. And I'm delighted that I'm less gray. As far as I've got all my hair. That's not going anywhere. That's just a genetic uh, thing on my mom's side. The Williamsons kept their hair. My dad's side, the Lilies are all bald. My dad's bald. So I realize I'm more Williamson than Lily in a lot of ways. And uh, there's not nearly as much gray in it as I think. I'm trying to pass for 35 still. It's Hollywood. You gotta be. You gotta try to keep people unaware of what your age is. I'm starting to figure that out. But you're a boss. But you you are in a position of authority now. Do you still have to play the age game? Oh, I think it's more than ever now. Now I sit there because all I constantly say to my writers because all my writers are younger than me, like 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 a generation younger than me. There are people in there that I'm like telling a story i'm like they were six when this story happened they are uninterested in what i have to say they don't understand the references i'm having to explain places things all kinds of nouns ideas everything is just an asterisk because it's like there's no frame of reference for it there's none there's not i shouldn't expect them to have that frame of reference i shouldn't they're young the world is a different place radically than it was when i was growing up and, and, and coming into my professional world and all that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to keep with it. I'm the old guy who's still trying. It's that big Steve Buscemi me that everybody talks about. Like, hey, there, young kids, whatever, from 30 Rock, however that works. I, that's me every day. Every day. Wow. Well, you don't look old. You're, you're, the, you're the model of health. There's a, there's a tick. Wait, are you having a beer? I am, yeah. Juneteenth, dude. We're recording this on Freedom Day. I'm having a beer. I am not working today. We took off from work. Gabe, uh, I'm I'm responsible for two shows right now, Blackish and Mixedish. And so I gave both rooms the day off in celebration of Juneteenth. Um, And I'm actually, and I'm I'm having a beer right now at noon because I also don't drink during the week so I can do this job because otherwise I just it just gets too complicated. It's like, I, I, I try to reward myself with either like a beer or wine or whatever. And it gets, and then it gets into a thing where there's too much of it. So I don't drink during the week. I only drink during the weekend, but Juneteenth holiday, three day weekend. I'm a hundred percent having right now. Uh, I'm going to do a bit for my writers at some point, because I think it's fascinating how like, like I just got an email from StubHub, like telling me that they're honoring Juneteenth. The place that, like, you know, you buy your bootleg tickets from or whatever, like the secondhand store thing, like, apparently they're on the wall for the cause right now. We've had Juneteenth for a hundred and some odd years. Where were they last year? 
And so I'm getting ready. I grab my beer. I'm going to do a bit with the Blackest Writers Room where I talk about like, uh, like we're just getting inundated with ads, just inundated with ads. And I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating how quick stuff happens. Like all of a sudden, everybody's down. And it's, hey, you know, it, I mean, it's better than not being down, but I find it fascinating. So I'm having a Juneteenth vlogger. Oh, may I say that Courtney and I are, we are recording on Juneteenth. I would say to you, sir, that mm, I would say 90% of white America discovered Juneteenth for the first time this week. Do you know what I mean? Yes. 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 We did an episode about it like like four years ago, you know, on a major broadcast network. And I remember getting it there. People just like, wait, what's this thing? How does this kind of work? You know, and it's just, I mean, it's a sign of progress. Look, man, like we've had Cinco de Mayo, we've had St. Patrick's Day. There's never been a day for Kiss Me on Black. If that's what this turns into, you know what? That's progress. That's absolutely progress. I'll take it. Everything's confused right now. Everybody's confused. People are trying to, like, everybody's trying to show their receipts for how down they've been. Like, it was like, I celebrated Juneteenth back in 2017. Okay. Like, it's like, that's all Twitter feels like it is right now. Everybody's saying that I wasn't a monster like four years ago. Like you, I have an elite education. I went to a high-powered prep school and a very high-powered university. I did not learn about the Tulsa Massacre until Watchmen, like most people like me. Yeah, I think Damon Lindelof learned about it around the same time, too. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, sorry to throw bombs. I find that show fascinating. People love it. I I I was not as down. I was not as down, I, but I want to, I, that's not what the podcast is about. The podcast is about what I'm down about, but I was like, I'm not as uh, no, no, that's okay. Because, uh, it's, it's an acquired taste. Uh, I think it, I think, I think Watchmen had some moments. Let's talk about blackish for two seconds. Yeah. Are you, are you, you're not doing, you're not running two rooms right now is mixed ish in production where we're both rooms are up. That's what I'm doing. Holy shit. So are you bouncing back and forth between two Zoom writer rooms? Yeah. Dude, dude, you've come a long way from when you and I were baby writers on My Boys. That is it's- fucking incredible. Holy shit. So uh, are, 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 do, you just, do you just have to book out time for when you're going to be in the Zoom with the Blackish writers from, from here to here, and then you're going to go over to Mixedish and then go back? Yep, yep. We wow, stagger man. the schedules about when we start. I kind of know when I have to, and we have a great team on both shows, people I've worked with before. And, you know, like both shows are, you know, Blackish is heading into seventh season and Mixed Dish is into its second. So there's like a core of people who understand what's going on. And I'm just, you know, like uh, assigning people what they kind of need to do, what we feel like we're trying to directions, we're taking things, and then they're able to run with it. So it just has to be kind of disciplined in how it works. And it is, it's no fun. I'll tell you that. It's not like, Hey, let's talk about what's happening or whatever the latest thing is or watch the videos or do all this other kind of stuff. I come in and it's like at 10 o'clock, I bounce into the room and I know I've got an hour before I got to go to the other show. And it like, like, you know, 1059, I'm getting texts from my assistant who's great saying like, it's time to go. It's time to go. So like almost like mid sentence, I'll jump. And it's like, like Star Trek or something like that. I'm hyper like transported into the other show's room. And I'm supposed to change thought process and remember exactly where we were. So it takes a few minutes of just talking. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. But I, I wake up early. I read a lot of notes. Another reason I'm not drinking on, on the weeknights is I wake up early, go through the notes, 
get everything organized so that when I'm there, we can be effective. We can talk about what we need. And so when I'm gone, everybody else can kind of like work on, um, on making the product that we need, the, the content, the show, the whatever you want to call it, the scripts, the words. This is, again, I've had two sips of a beer and this is what happens when you stop drinking every day. So it's like, it takes nothing. Let me just say for people outside the city of Los Angeles, basically Corey is the head, the head writer on those shows. So he is in charge. Uh, I don't want to get into like industry talk, but you know, you are in charge of running the room, breaking, helping everyone break the stories, quality content, vision of the show, point of view of the show. And at the same time, you're the boss of production and all the, all the production has to go through you, all the, the, the producer's decisions. I mean, that's what a, a showrunner in television, again, I'm just saying this for, for people who listen to this podcast outside the city of Los Angeles, because uh, there's two, my Aunt Jean in Hudson, Ohio, and uh, I think my my cousin Jim in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that uh, Courtney's the boss of Blackish right now. So that's all you need to know. Uh, a, a tremendous responsibility on a show that's now going going into its seventh season or going into eighth season? Into seventh. That's incredible. Wow, dude. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. Amazing. Well, you look amazing. You sound amazing. There's a little tick of gray down there on the right-hand yep. corner of the beard. I like it? that. I and think then you got to see the right angle. There's some in there. The beard is getting really kind of gray, and it's a little scraggly the closer you get to, to it. But from, from far back, it looks like like it looks good. If I put on sunglasses, I look like I could have been a pallbearer for somebody for Marvin Gaye's funeral. That's the way I look at it. You know, it's like. <laughs> well, you, you also, if if you said to people, oh, I'm currently, you know, I should be on tour right now with uh, many different bands. Your musician oh, vibe is very, is very, very heavy strong. Right Thank Frankie Beverly and Mays, all black uncle music. When you go to your black uncle's house and no matter what, like this is black uncles from like, before there was black uncle music, Teddy Pendergrass, all that other kind of stuff, just the whispers, all the bearded black guy bands. That is the aesthetic I'm going for right now. It's very leisurely. You're out in front of the barbecue. Everything's happening. People are just going to stop in. You're making plates. It's the summer vibe that I'm going for right now. Before we talk about Kate Bush today, and we're going to talk about Kate Bush because Courtney Lilly has a history with Kate Bush. Let me just ask you, you threw out a couple names. Let's break down who are who would you say are the top three black uncle bands? Oh, I mean, I, I you gotta start to me with Frankie Beverly and Bays. And it's like some of like that's the that's probably my own specific A, it just feels like you hear that like before I let go, and it's just kind of like you're in it. You're in it, you're transported back in time. It's like, and like part of it is that kind of like, again, that nostalgia for when you were growing up and that's the perfect kind of music that was at the restaurants and the barbershop. And again, when you're visiting your family. So that's definitely one. I did mention Teddy Pendergrass as that look, as that kind of thing. Um, some of it comes down to songs. You know, it's funny. We did a joke on Blackish about it and everybody's done jokes about it. My friends Bashir and Diallo on their show, uh, Sherman Showcase talked about it. It's a whole internet thing surprising it's not necessarily a black uncle band black uncle song it's uh that bobby caldwell song that i'm spacing on right now what's it called uh 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 i can't really uh what you won't do for love that's what it is that is the 
That is a that is a black barbecue family reunion. Half the black people don't even know Bobby Caldwell's white kind of song. It's always a trauma with the first time somebody sits there and realizes that's what's going on. And I think that's been his whole life. Because I saw something when we did a joke on it on Blackish, like people were like subtweeting it, and he tweeted back about that. So uh, that's just a jam. It's all that late 70s, into the 80s era vibe, you know? One of our actors, Dion Cole, plays a lot of, he does a, an Instagram uh, DJ set on Sunday, and he'll get into disco and some of that, and you get some of that black uncle vibe off of that. It's all the stuff that basically, when you're going to visit your uncle, he says, Hey, 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 boy, come here, come here, let me listen to this. You gotta listen to this. You gotta listen to this. That's the vibe, and that's the lifestyle I'm going for. Don't have kids. I'm, like I said, I'm not telling people what, what age I am, but I'm a black uncle. My, my nephews live in, in, in Brooklyn, and whenever they come out and visit, it's me just like, dragging them over to the vinyl. That's part of it too. Gotta have vinyl unnecessarily. It's not just hipster poser bullshit. It's also like black uncle bullshit, like the dusty vinyl that is squeaky and queaky and, 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 and crackling and all that stuff. And you bring them over there and you play them something that they hopefully will change their lives. That's my job. Well, well, here's the fun thing about Courtney Lilly people. As a black uncle himself, he may or may not play Kate Bush for his family members because this gentleman sitting across the table from me via the power of Squadcast today, I think is the biggest Kate Bush fan that I know, <laughs> you know, here on Juneteenth. what better artist to break down on Juneteenth than Kate Bush. <laughs> I will say I ride so hard for Kate Bush. She is a genius. She is. And it's one of those things like, for me, like, you know, like it's, it's kind of well documented on the internet at this point, like big boy of outcast, big Kate Bush fan. I think actually he got into her through like a black uncle experience where his uncle was just playing stuff and he played running up that hill for her, which we'll talk about, I'm sure at some point for him. And he was just like, what is that sound? You know? And she was just using the synthesizers in a way she got a fair light, all that stuff. And it was like, again, we'll get into all that good stuff. But like, she is singular and at a time when you're young and you're discovering music and you're looking for people who like fucking blow your doors off that's exactly what happened for me and i went <laughs> all in like i was gonna say that i mean i again i flew to london she's done two tours she did a tour in the 70s and then she did a tour back in 2014 and i flew to london with my best friend from high school and we went and saw her play and it was the hajj it was a pilgrimage it was unbelievable it was it was astounding in ways I, I i you know i there's two things i can't believe i've been able to see in my life i'd be able to see kate bush live be in the same building with her and then i got to see the philadelphia eagles win a super bowl i'm kind of ready to go at this point everything else is gravy everything else is gravy um she's just a genius miracle you you have worked incredibly hard to get to the position where you can fly to the uk to see Kate Bush. So let me bring let me bring everyone else into this discussion. Let me just simply start by saying that Catherine Bush, born on July 30th, 1958, is an English singer, dancer, songwriter, and record producer. In 1978, at the age of 19, she topped the UK charts for four weeks with her debut single, Wuthering Heights, becoming the first female artist in the UK to score a number one with a self-written song. So that's the setup for Kate Bush. 
Now, what we're doing today, Mr. Lilly, my friend, we are going, because I don't know much about Kate Bush. I, I love running up that hill. That'll come up later. But I really don't know too much about her. So what I'm going to do with you today is I'm going to change the game of the Brando cast up a little bit. And I'm going to throw at you the Guardian's top five Kate Bush songs. Now, the Guardian is the great British paper people. Uh, and they once broke down an article where they had a whole mess of Kate Bush songs. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to present Courtney with the top five Kate Bush songs, according to the Guardian. And then we'll try to get his reaction. And we're going to start right away with Hounds of Love, the 1985 song from the Hounds of Love LP. And here's what the Guardian had to say about Hounds of Love. Like a lot of Bush tracks, Hounds of Love looks faintly ridiculous on paper. The hook is provided by backing vocalists barking like dogs, but the reality is sublime. The moment when its mood of pregnant fear finally shifts into one of gleeful surrender at the line, don't let me go, hold me down, is one of the most jubilant in Bush's catalog. And again, we are listening to Hounds of Love. Agree or disagree? Top five. I don't know if I could put it top five. I love that song. I love that record. That record changed my life. Um, that whole LP. But like, you know, when I when I think of that song, there's two things that come to mind. First, it starts off with a like like she samples a movie quote. You know, it's in the trees. It's coming from this B movie, Night of the Demon, right? And Kate Bush. One of the things that drew me to her was the fact. That like with Wuthering Heights, we'll obviously talk about all this other kind of stuff. Like she used movies, literature, poetry, film, all these things that I was into to draw on to create her art. You know, so from the time she's 14, she got discovered by David Gilmour, by the way. You know, like literally she's uh, writing Pink songs. Floyd. Pink Floyd, David Gilmour, friend of the family. She made some demo tapes. He took the music, I think it's the EMI signed her, allowed her to incubate her career for a few years before she put out that first record. But like, I mean, obviously she has like a prodigious talent at a young age of writing these songs. But when you think about like a 13, like a 14 to 20 year old writing these songs, how do you write these songs that are that mature? Because she was literate. She was reading. She was interested in those kind of things, seeing movies and grabbing onto a piece of it and saying, there is a story behind this sequence that I want to tell, that I want to spend more time in. And it was, you know, and again, like, I, I mean, I got into Kate Bush at a very, like, the direct line for everything for me is Prince. I'm a big Prince fan. Love Prince. And Prince loved Kate Bush. Prince and Kate Bush collaborated once she was on his album, and he was on her album. And so, like, when I'm going through my Prince stuff, and I'm like, and it was the same thing, Prince loved Joni Mitchell. That's why I got really into Joni Mitchell. Because I, he would talk about Joni Mitchell, and he would cover Joni Mitchell songs, and he was working with Kate Bush. I'm like, I need to know who these people are. And I mean, again, those those two are the queens in ways. Do you think Prince and Kate Bush at least made out? I don't think it's that. I don't even know if they ever met. I'm not like, like genuinely speaking, like, again, I have no problem talking about Prince's sexuality in any kind of terms. I like don't know if they ever met even as much as like, like went through the things. I don't think he left Minnesota and flew to England. I feel like there were also two people who, like Kate Bush, she wrote a song on um, like uh, on her album, The Central World, 
uh, called Deeper Understanding. And it's about basically computers and people logging on and early internet interactions and chat groups and all these other kind of things. And the way that people feel isolated from those kind of things from each other and how they reach out to each other to kind of through this computer. Um, and Prince did similar kind of things, talking about like, he was very early into having kind of like an idea of a web presence and all these other kind of things. I think they just saw each other similarly. They're both producers of their own music. They are both had strong visions about where it was going and what it would be. And so I think, and, it, and, I, and I'm not sure, maybe even in the reading of it, I don't know as they both did it. They may have just done their own work and then sent it over, you know? Um, it, it was just, I mean, and so that's how I got into Kate Bush. And so for her, and How to Love is, I, and I love the music video, love the music video. It's like, it's just kind of like, I don't love old movies, but like, it's got that kind of like 1940s movie feel to it with a real square jawed hero who is kind of like going through some sort of prison things and these great shots that go like kind of around them as, and it's, and, as they kind of move from room to room and go through the drama um, of what's going on. And, and, and that's my main association with the song is that it is it does it is joyous and that line that they talked about don't let me go oh hold me down all that stuff is it's such a an expression you know she's like just exuberant in those kind of things and that's yeah but it's not a top five i don't think it's a top five but my top five stuff is very personal you know it's all the stuff you, that drove my roommates crazy in college you said that hound the hounds of love lp changed your life when did this record come into your life and what was going on for you then? Where were you in space and time when that record uh, changed your life? Early 90s, probably senior-ish year of high school, freshman year of college kind of thing, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and no, actually, you know what it was? I think it was my freshman year of college. Freshman year of college uh, in 1993. I played football in college at a small school that is notorious for being bad at football. And... Uh, I remember, and again, I was deep into my Prince thing, and Kate had just come out with a new album. And I'm sure like all Kate Bush fans, uh, when I heard the new single off that 93 album, I, they were lifting weights in, just like I was. I was literally in the weight room listening to the radio, and this Kate Bush song came on, and I was like, I'm going to... And I was able to put the name to that song, and I think it was like Rubber Band Girl, and it was cool. And I was like, oh shit, I'm just going to go out and buy the record. And this is New York in the nineties. And there's a guy on the corner of 114th street who just had CDs out and he would sell CDs. I went down there, got a CD for 10 bucks and I liked it. It was good. And I got into it and I kept doing more research uh, and reading about Prince and all that kind of stuff and going back to the old records. And so it was definitely like probably fall of 1993, my freshman year of, of college. And she, and then, so I think, cause my sophomore year, I definitely remember this. I was so into it that I bought all of her records and were playing them loud enough that my roommates hated me. Like they, they genuinely hated me. Uh, Kate Bush. The great thing about you <laughs> loving Kate Bush is that you wouldn't think that a person who is capable of playing football at the collegiate level would like Kate Bush. Like usually you like think like football players, they either like Metallica or they like fucking Kenny Chesney or they like ACDC, or they like Nas or Jay-Z, you know what I mean? Like, Kate Bush, you're a man of many complex uh, levels. So oh, yeah, and I like I all those people, that. too. And I, and I think I should also say, I wasn't good at football. Maybe that was part of it. Like, I was not, I was, I was a bad football player on the worst football team 
in the country. So I think that kind of qualifies me as far as like the football player mystique kind of. Uh, However, even though you are, you claim that you had that, you at least got to that level, which is still really hard. You know what I mean? Like you had that experience of playing football at the collegiate level. And because you went to a, a school, which uh, can we say it or can we not say it? We can say it. You don't care. You know, you went to you went to a, a school that's not a bad at school, which is Columbia, and you got to travel around the country or the at least New England, going to Harvard, Yale, because that was the league that you played in, right? Princeton, Harvard, yeah. Yale, Cornell. Yep. What do you, what give just give me the give me the worst game that you guys were involved in during your run? Do you remember? My run was very short, and it wasn't a game. Like we got our ass kicked all the time. What? My moment was I quit after my freshman year and like, I was just in like the transition from high school to college was hard. I, I loved New York, but I was spending all my time playing football. And so I didn't have a hard time meeting people, all those other kind of things. And I was realizing to, to do the things I wanted to do. I probably needed to quit, but at the same time, like football opened up opportunities for me. I love the game. I love the game still. Um, and I, I was just, it was just a hard time at first. And I remember one day I had a practice. We had practice on a Monday night. And I decided I was just going to do everything the coaches told me to do. I was going to listen. So like when they said I had to like get in a certain kind of crouch, so my, I played defensive back to get into my back pedal to cover receiver. I did exactly as they said. I didn't question anything. I just did what they needed me to do. And I clearly had my best practice. The coaches were like, Lily, where the fuck's that been all spring? All that, I mean, all fall, all that kind of stuff. It was crazy. And I was like, oh, it's something's clicked in me. I understand this thing now. And to excel at this game, I just need to listen to what they, what they want and, and then practice it. They can actually teach me things. And it was like a moment where I was going like, okay, like maybe I need to take this chip off my shoulder and allow others to teach me so I can grow and become better at this game. And then the next day, it was New York, and it was like sleeting sideways, cold, and they had me back with turning punts. And I'm like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> I'm like, I'm never stepping on foot of another football field in my life. I knew at that moment, I played it out for the rest of the year, but I was like, I, I like this time next year, I will not be doing this. And I just, I stopped. I mean, like everybody quits at Columbia. Like I think by the time it was our senior year, there were like 12 guys from a class of 40, like who came in freshman year. It's like a ritual. It was like a rite of passage at the end. Like the, cause we're all on the JV team this freshman year, our freshman year at the end of the season, like when we were all in the huddle, breaking it down, everybody's like, you know, great year. Everybody needs to get in there. We need to work really hard and get, get, come back stronger and practice. Okay, everybody, and, and nobody quit. Nobody quit. Okay, team on three. And I thought it was so weird to say nobody quit. Nobody quit. <laughs> Apparently, that was an issue because everybody quit. It was crazy. <laughs> Let me ask one last question before I go to uh, the next song on the Guardians list, and that is this. Is there anything that sports taught you that you can apply to your leadership positions in writing today as a showrunner. No, okay. Give me yeah. a couple. Give me a couple. Uh, I, the thing I love about sports that is different for a lot of things. It's like sports makes you be very realistic. And I think, and again, we're in Los Angeles. You understand that people are not realistic at all. They don't understand opportunity versus talent. And there is, like, again, I understand all the things about how increased opportunity gives you more opportunity than to grow talent. And talent is a thing of growing, but I do believe everybody understands natural talent in sports. You sit there and you think, I'm a good basketball player. And then you step on the court and you're like, nope, they're good basketball players. And to every degree and every level, you see that. And then you work harder or you stop playing 
to reach that next level. It's very, it's like video games. It's very incentivized. You understand what your, what the task and the goal is. And if you're trying to get to this level, you have to do this thing to get there. And you do it by hook or crook. You do it waking up early and putting in the extra miles, all those other kind of cliches. That is not the way people act in this city about nope. entertainment. That, that's and not the way everybody I act. Is, <laughs> everybody assumes. And again, that's not about opportunity, and it's different with finances and getting paid to do all these things, but everybody assumes they are ready right now. And the thing I've definitely learned is uh, you got to put people in positions to succeed. Everybody's not Michael Jordan. Everybody doesn't do it all. You need, like, you need like the Bulls. We've all seen the last dance, the Bulls. They have a guy who just rebounds, and then he can go to Vegas. You don't treat everybody the same. This is not kindergarten. It is the real world. Everybody's a professional. So some people, because they give you something and they're talented enough, get special treatment. They get treated in a different kind of way. And that's just the way it works. To, to succeed, you have to be able to step back and see how the component parts work. And you have to put people in positions to succeed. Now, also part of that leadership, though, is allowing people to grow and say, hey, I would like to do these other things and giving them the opportunity within limits as long as it doesn't mess what mess up what the team needs to do you know so if all of a sudden you have bill cartwright out taking threes you're like you know what maybe that isn't a good idea we need you to stay down there and occupy the block um but all all i do is talk in sports analogies sports or music and the way a band works the way like great moments in sports great moments in teamwork great moments in the synchronicity and harmonizing about of how people don't have to communicate verbally to be on the same page my my interest in sports and the reading I've done about music, whether it's like Miles Davis's band and the amount of work ethic that goes in all these things, nobody ever gives athletes enough credit for the work ethic they have. Nobody. Everybody talks about natural talent, but it's talent on top of work ethic. And that is the kind of things And you you have to create a culture. There are winning cultures and there are losing cultures. And there's people who panic and there's people who don't. And all that stuff I've seen through the lens of sports. And that's kind of like, so everything to me is like taking a step back, slowing it down, prepping, being prepared, getting as many repetitions in as possible. So like when it's game time, you're prepared. You know, that's it. That's it. Cause you, I mean, things come at you fast. It's unpredictable. You can't control what's going to happen, whether the opponent is the network or the studio or your ratings or another show or the actors or the writers or whatever those kind of things are. But if you know what you're trying to do and you feel prepared, you should be able to reach as much success as the scenario will give you. You know? Would you say that game time in a sitcom is tape night? Well, you know, we shoot five days a week since we don't have the, the I, and, I, and I think by tape night, often for us on Blackish, it's really the table read. It's really the table read. Like we have a great cast and they come prepared for that table read, man. It's like, it's genuinely entertaining, but that's the real place where you can get notes back from the, from the network of the studio. And you get to hear whether it works. And also it's a place for the actors uh, it's the one time they read the whole script front to back together. Um, so if you're going to instill confidence in the, 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 the cast to, to read the words and to understand it, that's going to be funny. They need to trust us. And that's our place to trust, to, to, to earn their trust. When they see with a room of people that they're laughing and they're enjoying it. Um, so that's really, you know, prepping up the rewrite before then is game time. And you trust the system again. You know, trust the process literally not only because I'm a Sixers fan, but also because that's how it works. Like, I don't know how it's going to work, but every time by grinding on it, staying in it, working and trying to keep making it better, the process kind of ends up where we are in a place where we get something that isn't terrible most of the time. And we put ourselves in a position to always be able to improve upon it. So 
um, yeah, that's kind of our game plan. Wow. I think you basically just took a bunch of people to show running school. Amazing. Incredible answer. All right. We're finally hearing Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights came in at number four for the Guardian's top five Kate Bush songs of all time. Wuthering Heights, again, from the Kick Inside LP. And here's what they had to say about this song. It's hard to get across how extraordinary the swooping vocals and gothic romance of Wuthering Heights sounded on arrival, like nothing else in the pop landscape of the time or indeed before it. Bush had to resort to tears to persuade her label to release it as her debut, Wuthering Heights. This is, you know, American radio is so horrible. We didn't get to hear this on American radio, so we didn't know this. This was not like a big cultural hit for us, so they didn't play it. They didn't really play Kate Bush in America until Running Up That Hill. Oh, it's so interesting, because like when they did, when she did her tour in 2014, you know, obviously I'm in London and hanging out, and one of the criticisms was that like, because she didn't play Wuthering Heights. And so some of the criticisms were like, she didn't play the hit. And it was so interesting to me, because my big introduction was like through the later stuff, and she did, she basically did, she played like, you know, she played Hounds of Love in its entirety, including the, the second side, the B side of Hounds of Love, the album, is a song cycle about a woman who kind of like gets lost at sea and her kind of like like hazy, dreamy sense as she's trying to stay tethered to this world between this one and the next one. Um, and it's like, and it's amazing. That's the side that changed my life, really. Like the first side, hit, song, there's amazing songs about a mother who's able to protect her son and how that, that bond is, even though he, he's a murderer and all that other kind of stuff. Just really short story-esque kind of songs. But that second one, tying those in, it's called The Ninth Wave, and it's a Tennyson quote that deals with it. And there's like Irish jig music, and she grabs bits from like Nosferatu. And like, it is just, she's samples of the era. She She's very specific, but it's also an emotionally explicit song. Like thinking back in your last moments, the cold, being underwater, who you're going to miss, what you're going to miss, the parts of your life that are fighting and holding on for you. So that was the part that was really, really exciting about it. But of course they did. And so she did that whole thing. Like it was a, it was like a musical. So my, I, my mind was blown. I'm literally on the verge of tears. I'm not really great at crying. It's just like, I haven't touched that part of my emotional self yet. I've been in therapy for about like seven or eight years. And I figured it'd take seven or eight more years before I cry at appropriate moments. But <laughs> I was almost in tears. Uh, uh, which is like the, the emotional apex of my sentimentality. And, and because it was so, it's exactly what I want. I couldn't believe I was watching it because that was what I wanted it, would have wanted it to be. Wuthering Heights, I love the song. There's a whole thing now. There's a Wuthering Heights day where people dress up like Kate Bush in the red flowy gown from the video. Look it up on YouTube. YouTube. It's amazing. It's like, it's like the most Wuthering Heights day. And people all over the world, Berlin, London, different places, will dress in red and dance the dance that she does in the music video. And it's weird. You know, she did a lot of like like mime and interpretive dance and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, like, I think it's like, was it Lindsay Kemp? It like, was like the, 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 who she worked with. And it's, and it's, you're watching a 19, it's almost, it's, it's for the uninitiated, it's almost like that kid in high school who was the best at drama at your school, who everybody thought was good at drama. But then once they get in the real world, you realize they're bad at drama. 
it's that except for good. Like it's it's really yeah. I understand well, why people hate it. Like, that, that's also, kind of me. You 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 almost described me. I wouldn't say I was the best at drama at the Albuquerque Academy, but I was close to. So, but <laughs> not so much in the city of Los Angeles. Yeah, like it's it's also not to gender everything, but it's more like the 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 female version of that. You know, where it's almost just like you know, I God, I wish there was a character because I remember like maybe Clueless or one of those movies would always know that kind of sense of who it is that overly mature 17 year old who thought they were above all that that's what it felt like it felt pretentious in a way but deliciously pretentious it was like free from all that other kind of stuff that's what it was and like and i think the thing about her as an artist that i'm most and it's a thing that's so hard in this moment she feels authentic authentic in a way that we're all reaching for authenticity now but she's authentic in that like it doesn't seem like she give a fuck, gives a fuck what, what people think. And some of the shit works. Some of it doesn't. Some of it's cheesy. Some of it's sublime. Um, and I think that's what people respond to. I've really seen in the last few years, I feel like in the last 10 years specifically, maybe not 10 years, maybe really right around her return in 2014 with that record and the internet culture and the moment we're in right now, people are really responding to her. And I think it's that authenticity that like she doesn't give a fuck. You know, she'll be like, hey, it's seven years between albums. I don't tour. I need to produce my own things. And like, uh, and like as a musician, she's wonderful. But I think also as a symbol, she's wonderful in this moment, you know? So, yeah. Do you think it's harder in the modern age to be authentic? Oh, yeah. No, because everybody thinks about it. It's like such a meta question now, you know? And I think it's, you know, who are the authentic kids? It's like, oh, like, is it the kids of rich people? Is it the kids of rich people? Who like, hey, you know, you're so-and-so's celebrity son or daughter. You get to kind of do whatever you want. And I think it's different. My main thing is, I think, because there's not a monoculture. And there's no cost to being authentic. You know? Like, there used to be a cost in that, like, oh, I got this. Maybe it's not even just authentic, but, like, making decisions that, um, you know, being punk there was a cost to it. It was anti-society. It was like, you can't work at the bank if you had a certain haircut or if you dressed a certain way. And like, yeah, there's still obviously places, but like everybody's kind of relaxed in the way there's a home for everybody. As far as like, whatever you're into, the internet can find a place. Like I don't, it's, everybody feels outcast. It's an, it's an interesting thing because like there is like loneliness has not gone away. The feeling an outsider has not gone away, but it's never been easier to connect with people who may feel the way you do, you know? And that was not the case when we were growing up. Like if you like something, you may not run into somebody else who likes it for 10 years. You know, that's part of the thing. Like you're a big band person. You remember these shows. Like people remember these things. It's the one place when such and such band came to town or whenever these places were, they were, they were communities and cultures to themselves. That's what record stores used to be. That's obviously what video stores used to be. All these places for people who had like-minded sentiments that put them, you know, it's like everybody likes John Waters movies. Now there's nothing to lose. It's like you're not going to be called a name. You're not going to get necessarily ostracized. You're not, you don't have to go to some small theater in a bad part of town necessarily to engage in it. And you can just appreciate for what it was when those were signifiers of things that they're not now. Um, so I think it was much easier to, I think that, I think it's harder now because it doesn't mean quite the same thing where it did mean that I'm stepping outside the culture, that I'm going to make sacrifices. Even being a musician was like, yep, I'm probably going to be on the dole and not make any money by being a musician, you know? And so like now, again, it's just like, 
there's no cultural loss. And so it's, again, it's like, oh, so-and-so's an actor and his kid wants to be a musician. I'm going to hook him up with all these great producers because it's just everybody washing each other's hands. And then we get fed. Maybe it's good sometimes. Sometimes it's not. You know, who knows? But, like, it, it is – it was a little better – I'm going to say, again, this is just bullshit Gen X. Like, it was better when I was growing up nostalgia. Because it was. When there's, it, it was. was. When there's a cost to be paid, when there's a sacrifice, it means more. And they're going to put more into it. And I, and I would rather have people be healthy and not get addicted to heroin and die early and not have to live in flop houses. Yes, that's all better. I don't want that. I'm not going to be nostalgic for poverty. But it is. It, it, there's something about the people who broke through that was original and interesting. Not that they're not. I'm not one of those people that stops listening to new music. I think oh, there's so much good music. I think the way the kids can collaborate nowadays, I think the SoundCloud and all those things that open up the industry and the business, we're getting great, 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 great stuff out of that. It's just different. And there's so much content. There is so much content. It's almost impossible to dig through the giant pile of hay and find that needle. Because yep. 30 years ago, we only had a couple channels that we watched, even on cable. We only had a couple channels that we watched. Every city had two or three radio stations and then one college station. The, 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 we all read the same magazines. We all watched the same stuff on, on MTV. So now there's so much. I, I bet that there are some writers on Blackish and Mixedish that are listening to things that I might never hear at all, ever, ever, ever. Oh, 100%. Yes. Yeah. Oh, totally. And that's like the thing that I get into. And that's like, I, you know, I just, it makes me feel my age. I'm just like, I'm really into music. And they talk about things and I'm like, I'm catching up with it. There's that Freddie Gibbs and Mad Lib album that came out last year. It was interesting with one of the writers on our show, you know, and like Mad Lib has been somebody who's been as a DJ and producer has been around. Like I remember the first Quasimodo album was 20 years ago and it blew people's minds and it blew my mind. It was a big record. And it's just like, again, a lot of sampling and he would use like, um, a lot of, um, what's the guy, uh, Melvin Van Peebles tracks from his records to sample and pull things out of. And they're sonically dense and interesting. And he's just a great producer and a great hip hop producer. And, you know, and he's working with Freddie Gibbs and there's a whole thing. And like the younger writer was kind of like, oh man, you got to listen to this. And I'm like, and there's that moment again, black uncle moment where I'm just like, oh no, man, I'm on this. I've been on this. I've been on this since you were seven years old, dude. <laughs> you know, and it was like, but like, Every act associated with it, I had no idea. Like around it, because I just, there's too much. And I, you know, and you get older and you don't have the same bandwidth and time. And so it's kind of, it's interesting. But whenever it's also more rewarding, like I find like, even though there's so much, when there's something I absolutely connect with, that I either live my entire life and didn't know existed from the past. Like, a, you know, there's a recent, like, I just discovered uh, this Dion record, uh, Born to Be With You, and it's, like, been around for forever. It's Phil Spector produced it, It's a, and, it's, and it's late wall of sound stuff, but I'm in love with it. And I sat there, and every time it's like a marvel, I'm like, holy cow, I can't believe I've lived my entire life without knowing about this. And then it's the same thing happens with new music, where I'm like, holy cow, man, I'm so glad. It feels like sometimes you're like, this has already existed and is speaking to you. Um, and then now you just get to actually put the pieces together. So I love those moments whenever they happen. I'm having that right now with um, British and American psychedelic music from the mid to late 60s. Like there's the Nuggets collection. I've always had that Nuggets collection that has all that stuff, but it's deeper than I ever knew. And I'm I'm actually using the tools online to just collect 
as much of that stuff as we can. All right, let's get into the number three. The number three from The Guardian. The number three Kate Bush song from The Guardian. It's This Woman's Work, 1988. Originally released on the She's Having a Baby soundtrack that's come up on this podcast before and then released on her album Sensual World. And The Guardian had this to say about This Woman's Work. Charged with the unpromising task of writing a song to order for the U.S. rom-com She's Having a Baby, Kate Bush came up with this, a sparse, moving meditation on loss, regret, female strength, and male frailty. There's almost nothing to it beyond her piano and her voice, which is all you need. I mean, in a lot of ways, this song, like if you want to do a, a bit about a movie trailer or a bit about the moment in the movie where things go sideways for the lead female character, this woman's work comes on, but it's an exceptional song. And we've talked about it on this, um, because I've done bits on this podcast of great soundtracks, great songs from soundtracks, great songs from the 80s. And this this one always comes up in every single discussion. Well, it's it's timeless. And like, it is. Like, it it speaks to, again, the emotional core of what makes her songs work. You know, she's got a song on on her album, The Dreaming, about, like, a woman who is, is afraid to have her pilot partner fly some mission to Malta, you know? And, like, she addresses the core, and it's often a dynamic between a man and a woman, like, in, in these short stories, old, kind of Hollywood filmy kind of way. And she uses her lyrics and her music to to be very direct in saying what's happening emotionally with the character. She'll write from point of views of women. She'll write from point of views of men. She'll write from point of views of children. She'll write from point of views of, of odd stories of the song she has about based on a movie about a woman who has like an affectionate feeling for a younger boy, like a boy, like a, like a, like a child basically. Um, and it, it's, and she's bringing all this humanity into these stories. And when you sit there and it's like, pray God you can cope. I stand outside this woman's work. And it's like, and, and the music video is fantastic too. And you think, and it's a moment so many people go through. And of course now like men are allowed in the delivery room, all that other kind of stuff. This is a different era. I don't know how much they were allowed into, but being outside of something and having care for somebody in a moment where you can't do anything is as human experience as it gets. And to write a beautiful song about it, um, and to write a vulnerable song about it uh, from a point of view of a man who has to express his vulnerability is why it's timeless. You know, it is, it is, it's, you know, it's, yes, it's about a woman going through childbirth and a struggle, uh, about that, but it's, you can take that sentiment and, uh, people living with aging parents, people, going through their own children, going through struggles and being able to want to do something that, you know, it's out of your hands. And it is, uh, it is a remarkable, it's a thing that we look to. And again, that's the nice thing. My father's a, a pastor uh, and a minister. I grew up going to church all the time and music has always been a, a place where in the songs you can find a sense of security, a sense of, uh, of, of calm, a sense of peace. And I think that's a good version of that. It's not a hymn. I'm not saying it's like a hymn. But in moments of crisis, of frailty, 
songs like that, that's when you really listen to the words and you hear what somebody's going through. And it's just gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Now, you said something very interesting about Kate Bush's ability to write from different points of view. Tell me if I'm wrong. Isn't one of the most important skills that you have to have as a television writer or a writer in general, but a television writer, to be able to write from the point of view of as many possible characters as you can? I mean, is that something that you look for in your young writers, their ability to write the point of view of the show of Blackish or Mixedish or or whatever it is? Yeah. I mean, like, I think we're in a complicated moment because, uh, we're in a complicated moment because right now everybody says, write your story. And there's a, there's, there's a reason to do that. You know, right now, when, when I started getting in the business, it was all about writing pilots. I mean, not pilots, it was writing specs. And so you would sit there and you'd be like, oh, here's a, a friend or here's a curb your enthusiasm. And it would show off your skills as a writer, being able to tell a story. And I think there is point of view and individual outlook and on the world and all that kind of stuff when you're doing that. But as we've got into people writing pilots, which I personally think is a mistake. Um, uh, it's all, everybody's writing the same pilot, especially younger writers. It's like why they decided to become a TV writer instead of a doctor. That's basically the pilot. <laughs> That's, it, it's a version of that. Or I moved back in with my parents because something didn't go right on my way to becoming a doctor. You know, it's like whatever the thing is. It's like, and again, it's just, it's a business that self-selects a lot for people who are like, of certain educational backgrounds, so on and so forth. So it's really, it's, and when you're in your twenties, you just don't have a lot to write about. Really. If you're just going to write your own story, it's like, well, what happened? You know, it's like, that was the thing. Like I went to my 10 year high school reunion. I remember being there and being like, everyone's just like six years out of college. Nobody's done anything interesting. Maybe somebody had a young baby, but like nobody did anything that interesting. And like you're 27, 28, and that's where a lot of people get their first cracks into the business at that age. And you just haven't done anything. There's nothing to write about. And the job itself is to write from a point of view that may be wholly unfamiliar. My first job was on Arrested Development, and there was nobody on that show like me. I had to figure out ways to get in. But that comes because the job of actually being a writer is to be a reader. Like, I, my last assistant, the one I have right now, Lo Howard, is great. I love her. She's great. But I got her through... My last assistant, Ricky Lark, who's great too. And in my meeting with Ricky, um, I ended up uh, uh, talking to him about like, like, well, what are you watching right now? And he said, well, I'm having a hard time because I'm not really watching a lot, but I'm reading a lot. And I was like, I assumed he was talking about scripts. And he said, yeah. And, he's, and so I was like, well, what scripts are you reading? He's like, no, I'm books. And he, this motherfucker started talking about books, like not just like, Hey, I'm looking like everybody's talking about this big New York Times bestseller or this thing or whatever this thing is. No, he was reading all the shit I was into. Ishmael Reed, Percival El- uh, uh, Everett. Uh, he was reading like James Baldwin and all this other kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's going to make you a better writer. And like Kenya Barris, who created Blackish and good friend of mine. I remember sometimes we sit there and we talk about it and we get with people and he, and, and he put it perfectly. It's like, well, what? gets in the way of people becoming better writers. And he's just like, they got to read better stuff, <laughs> you know? Wow. And there is better stuff to read. And if you're not reading, you're not going to become a better writer. Wow. And, and it is, that's the thing that gives you the ability to look at different points of view. If you're only watching things, it's exactly like the news. Your, your grandma who just watches Fox News is just going to get these points reinforced. If you only read stories that are enforcing your point regardless whoever you are 
you're not going to be able to write from different points of view. You're not going to be able to empathize. There's a writer, this woman, Rachel Cusk, who wrote uh, a, a, tr- a trilogy of books recently that got a lot of acclaim. Um, and I'm in a book club and I read it through the book club and it blew my mind. So much so that like when she came to the uh, uh, LA library and spoke last year, I flew home from Boston early um, to make sure I could make it. And I just wanted to see her speak. And you have those experiences when things are out. Like she's a, you know, a middle-aged British woman writing from a, her perspective, so on and so forth. It was like, it was remarkable. It was, it was, it was remarkable to see her speak. And my world opens up every time I listen to music that is unfamiliar. I read points of view that are unfamiliar. Um, and so it, it does, if you want to get in this job and like, when I say a job like staffing, and I think a lot of people aren't interested in staffing, they would be like, Oh, I want to be a showrunner. If you're in your twenties and you want to be a showrunner, you probably actually don't know what that job is. Cause that's mostly like HR and management. It's not it's this creative thing that you think it is. You might as well just say, I want to get paid more. And that's the, that's cool. That's fine. I want to do interviews. I want to talk to the guardian, whatever you want to do. That's cool. But it's not, it, it's not writing. If you really, in my job, like the thing I miss the most is writing because writing is unlike anything else. You can do anything with it, but the way to do anything with it is to understand other people, be curious, ask more questions than talk, you know, all that stuff, you know? So um, it's definitely the job of a writer to be able to, to get into, to understand your, your, the voice of the person who you're trying to please, whether it's a showrunner or yourself, you know, you just went, we're in showrunner school, people. We're in writer school. With Courtney Lilly. Unbelievable. Dropping the bombs on people. I think a lot of those young kids who, who want to be showrunners is what they what you said it. They, they want to they want to live at the top of Beachwood Canyon. All right, we're listening to The Man with the Child in His Eyes from Kate Bush's Kick Inside LP. That's number two for the Guardian. Coming up with the man with the child in his eyes, lushly melodic, that turns creepy and erotic, mysterious and alluring would be an astonishing achievement at any age. The fact that Bush was 13 years old when she wrote this song was perhaps the earliest sign she wasn't just a singer-songwriter, but an actual, no further questions, genius. That word genius, I think the word genius is tossed around way, 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 way too loosely in nearly every single field. Um, Are you willing to say Kate Bush is a genius? I'm not great with genius. I just don't know what it means. I have a hard time with that. I think she's like an iconoclast. She's unique. She's an individual. Like, I don't know what we want out of genius. <laughs> like, I don't know what that answer is to that. Um, What's well, lost? I think the, I think it's lost its meaning. I think the word yeah. genius has, has lost its meaning. For me, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, genius. Michael Jordan, Genius at basketball, David Bowie, you know, Prince, genius. Um, but the word has lost its meaning. But I think you and I are inspired by you and I are inspired by artists that do. I think we share that love of people who do their thing and they stay true to that thing and they grow in that thing and they be they 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 they're the embodiment of that thing, that spirit that inspires the the rest of us. And I think that there's, there's certainly genius in that. She's an artist unabashedly, which is also a word that's been diluted over time. 
I mean, like, if we're going to throw all those names, I would throw her on top of those names, too, because I think she is. And I just have a hard time with the word genius because I don't know what we want out of it a lot of times. It's like, right. do we want it to be this thing that is that that's, uh, it, it gets into, like, hero worship and kind of those kind of things, you know? And it's like, and again, we're always looking to find ourselves in it. It's like, they're a genius because they speak to me and all that other kind of stuff. Maybe there are actual things of genius that we that are more tangible and easier to define i just don't like putting that label on people per se but that being said that song has an emotional maturity that as a 13 year old doesn't even make sense <laughs> you know it doesn't even make sense it's like she was definitely listening to adult conversations adult topics all that other kind of stuff and who knows again throw it at 13 and you know, and again, by the time you're recording it, you're like 18, 19, there's more that there's you can sing it in a different kind of way. Um, but it is, she was, she was certainly extraordinary and not only just extraordinary, but extraordinary for her age and all that other kind of stuff. And it's a song. I'm not as in love with that song as everybody else is like, and that was supposed to be the first single instead of Wuthering Heights. And it's dope. And it's, and it's, it's good. It's a little repetitive to me, you know? Um, but like, you know, when we saw it with Lord, when Lord came out with her record, it was like, she's so young. She's 17. How's she doing these things? And like, we, we're just fascinated with youth. And so whenever somebody young does that, all that kind of stuff, it's kind of like a big, big deal. Um, I don't need to play into that thing, but like, I mean, I'm also impressed. I mean, I got like a nephew who's eight. I'm like, he's not doing that in five years. Love him. He's great. He's got a lot of talent, but I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, at 13, at 13 years old, I think my only goal in life was to get past the 12th key of Pac-Man, which is a right. really fun way to bring up the Guardian's number one song because it happened around the time that I got to the 12th key on Pac-Man. It's running up that hill from 1985's Hounds of Love LP. This is the first Kate Bush song that I ever heard. And here's what the Guardian had to say about their number one Kate Bush song. For all her hits... There is a sense in which Kate Bush is not a singles artist. You can't really get a sense of the scope and depth of her albums via the singles taken from them. But if you were forced to choose one song that encapsulates her uniqueness, you should choose Running Up That Hill, a hit in 1985 and a track that simultaneously functions as pop and something infinitely stranger. Ozzy Osbourne, my friend, once said, you are not a true band or artist until you have your anthem. And I think that this, for better or for worse, is Kate Butch's anthem. Oh, it's a perfect song to me. It's like, I have a playlist of songs on my iPod. iPod, again, that's how old I am. I guess on my iCloud or iTunes, whatever the fuck that is now. But like, of like, it's like my top 50. And it moves around. I haven't actually touched it in a long time. But that song is 100% on it. It is like, it is, it's not only anthemic, the driving beat and the way she, like, after having had a record that wasn't deemed as successful, even though I thought it was interesting artistically and all that other kind of stuff, to come out and make this record and do it her own way. And it's a statement. And it's that thing. Here's the thing. Here's another thing about Kate Bush. Born in 1958. You know who else was born in 1958? Prince and Michael oh. Jackson. They're oh. born within months of each other, all in 1958. So this is happening in 1985. So she's like, what, 27 years old? You know, so even at that point, like to make her like, and again, 84, 83, 84, that time for Prince and all that kind of stuff, 84 for, you know, for Michael Jackson and like you got Thriller, 83, 84, all that stuff is happening. And these artists, 
just just singular talent and her making this record that did sound different than the other stuff she said she made and was like and again like she had a, 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 a again as soon as she hit with her weathering heights in england it was like what's she doing next and like she had that she was a first round draft pick she's in the nba you're the number one overall pick and so your career is defined by that all the time like you said first woman to to have her own self pin number one in the uk so they're watching every move she's doing all these interviews she's doing all this other kind of stuff so it's just like with an athlete and all that kind of stuff when she got to the dreaming and they're like eh, you know and the record sales weren't as strong and there wasn't a hit off of it they're ready to sit there and say you know what that was nice but she's done and she comes out with this first track on this record sounds like unlike anything else that's going on and it is like you said an anthem it's a statement and then on top of that Again, like they said, it was like a pop record, so it had the radio airplay, blah, 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 all this other kind of stuff. The B side of that entire record, like we talked about, is a song cycle. No singles on it. Nothing remotely close to it. It's a giant, fuck you. I can still do my shit. I am relevant. I'm always going to be relevant. I'm not going anywhere. It is a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable record. And I, that, and it's, and the, the themes of the song, it's just so simple. It's just so simple. It's just communications between a couple. How hard it is to be able to communicate with one, with one another. Uh, and, and, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's remarkable. And her voice is as good as it's ever been. I, I just like that. And I love, again, like, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. Love all Kate Bush across the board. But this song, this track in particular, man, it's like, throw it on. And there's a great thing. Again, we talk about big boy and, uh, uh from outcast and his Kate Bush law. There's a great thing you can find on the internet of him listening to it. And he's just kind of like snapping along and listening to it. And it's a jam. Fucking love it. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Created at a time. And I've said this before, 83, 84, 85 is a staggering period of rock pop music and all the other affiliated genres, whether it's Billy Jean or born in the USA, or like a virgin, or I mean, it, it is a there's a or purple rain. Yeah. It is a staggering period of creation, and and the video age is allowing people to see each other, yep. allowing people to see what artists look like, and artists themselves are borrowing from each other. I mean, it, it is a you know, again, I'm going to sound like creepy white uncle. This is the greatest period of <laughs> you know, it's it's a really incredible period of time. All right, my friend, we have been talking for one hour and three minutes here on Juneteenth with my friend in real life, Courtney Lilly. Um, bud, we're gonna wrap things up. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have Richard play us out with your favorite. Do you have a favorite Kate Bush song that was not on this list? Uh for me, it comes off of that same record, Hounds of Love, because it's like it is, uh, it's like, again, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's cloud busting. Um, it is with a video, Donald Sutherland's in the video. It's, and it's great. It's great. Perfect. All right, my friend, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for you taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule running two goddamn shows. I wish you nothing but continued success. And I hope that we can hike in Griffith Park very soon. Uh, yeah, with some dogs. All right. Love it. Uh, I'm this has been an absolute blast. And I hope some of you listening were taking notes because uh, Courtney is the epitome of a working writer in the city of 
Los Angeles. So thank you again, my friend. Keep the beard oh, going. Man. I, I, my barber, I'm, I'm again, I'm not, I, I can't go see, I'm still not getting haircuts. I'm not in Michigan with goading, toting a gun, protesting it. I'm sticking with the beard until we get a vaccine. So this is going to be a while. Okay. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for participating in the Brando cast. Thank you so much for subscribing, from liking, leaving reviews on Apple. Please tell your friends. We got so many great shows uh, coming down the line and we are growing exponentially day by day. Till next time.